Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. May is a National Critical Care Awareness and Recognition Month. During this month, we recognize many of our team members who make a difference for patients and families in our ICUs. To mark this special month, today's episode of Critical Matters will focus on the one thing that always makes a difference and is held true for, for many, many years, and that is compassion in the ICU. We are very lucky and honored to have back Dr. Stephen Treziak as a guest for the podcast. Dr. Treziak is Chief of Medicine at Cooper University Healthcare and Professor and Chair of Medicine at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University in Camden, New Jersey. Dr. Treziak is a practicing intensivist and an NIH-funded clinical researcher with more than 100 publications in the scientific literature. His research interests include resuscitation, shock, cardiac arrest, and in recent years, the scientific study of compassion in medicine. He is the co-author of a recently published book, Compassionomics, The Revolutionary Scientific Evidence That Caring Makes a Difference. And today, he's back to talk about compassion. Steve, welcome back to Critical Matters. Sergio, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, it's great to be here, and I really appreciate it. So since we last spoke on Critical Matters, which is over a year ago, a lot has happened in the field of Compassionomics and, in, and with your team. You've published a phenomenal book that we will definitely link in the, uh, in the show notes and we'll talk about today. You have also have had some very interesting original studies uh, looking at compassion and its effect on patients and how to measure it, but we'll also hopefully touch today. So really a busy year since we last spoke, Steve. It has been a busy year, and um, I, th- I think that the topic of compassion in medicine in general, just beyond the ICU, but in, in healthcare in general, really resonates with people. And the reason is that so many people have a story, either a story where a healthcare provider um, treated them with incredible compassion and it made a major difference in their life or unfortunately on the other side of the scale where they were treated with an absence of compassion and it made a lot of difference in the wrong direction. And so I, I think the topic is something that, that really resonates with people and and um, as you mentioned, we're also not trying to build the original science program uh, to uh, to get to new discoveries in this space as well. And I think that you've mentioned it in Compassionomics, but a lot of people have talked about this in different ways. But at the end of the day, people don't remember what you said. They don't remember what you did, but they definitely remember how you made them feel. And I think especially in the ICU, when either people are very critical and at the verge of death or people lose loved ones, I think that is probably more true than anywhere else. Absolutely. Uh, and it stays with people. I mean, there's re- research to show that when you break bad news uh, to patients or families, when you tell them the news that creates the worst day of their life, they'll never forget it. And they can remember every little detail. You as the healthcare provider may not remember the details even a month from, from that point, but they'll never forget it. In fact, they can give you such stark detail as they can tell you what uh, what you were wearing at the time, they can picture it right in front of them like it was uh, like it was yesterday. So I, I would like to start for maybe a refresher for some of our listeners who may have heard the first episode we did together, but 
also to make sure that everybody's on the same page with some basic definitions, which I think will set up the stage for our discussion, Steve. I think a lot of people talk about empathy in medicine, compassion in medicine. Some people tend to confuse them, but could you start by defining the difference between empathy and compassion? Absolutely. So the terms are related, closely related actually, and yet distinct. So empathy is the feeling or understanding of one's emotions, and that includes the detection. So detecting, feeling, and understanding. Compassion is a bit different. So it's not just feeling or understanding, but the emotional, uh, but an emotional response to take action to relieve another's pain or suffering. So compassion is typically defined as the emotional response to another's pain or suffering involving an authentic desire to help. So the way we um, try to illustrate the difference between the two is that empathy plus action equals compassion. But clearly, empathy is vital because if you can't detect, feel, or understand another's emotions, you would never be motivated to take action to try to relieve their, someone's pain or suffering. So they're very closely related. Uh, they, um, they're, um, of course, you must have empathy in order to show compassion. But you could have empathy for someone and yet take no action and the patient would never know the difference. So uh, my colleague, Anthony Mazzarelli, who's a co-author on the book, Compassionomics, likes to say that you can have empathy through a one-way mirror, but you can't have compassion. Uh, and compassion is what the patient experiences in the actions that you take to try to help them. And I think that one of the, the, the concepts that I think has been mo most interesting for me since we started talking about these topics uh, that you have brought to my attention and, and start thinking about it in a more rigorous way is also that when we talk about compassion, a lot of people feel the touchy-feely and a lot of people feel pain, but there's also a recognition that whatever makes me feel better makes another human being feel better, and that is also a compassionate in terms of our actions, recognizing that as I would feel other people would also feel if I do certain things. And I think that's maybe a good guiding principle for us in the ICU, not only with our patients, but with our colleagues. I, I totally agree. And I'm glad you brought up colleagues because uh, relationships matter. And so much of the book we've dedicated to relationships with patients or in the case of the ICU, patients and families. But relationships with each other among the caregivers is also a vital component of the experiences that we have in taking care of people. And showing compassion for one another is also vitally important. What is compassionomics? So compassionomics is the convergence of the science and the art of medicine. So we often think of the science and the art of medicine as distinct, and compassionomics is the uh, is an approach really. So for decades, voices in medicine and have been calling for more compassion in medicine. As we we look back on on decades. I'm not certain that it's really moved the needle very much. And so uh, um, Anthony Mazzarelli and I decided that we needed to take a different approach and try to look for the scientific effects. Where, are the, where is the evidence that caring makes a difference, not only for patients and patient care, 
but also for those who care for patients. And so Compassionomics is, is our approach where we're trying to take, where possible, a quantitative approach because what we have found in curating the evidence in the biomedical literature that have been published over the decades, what we have found is that compassion matters, not only in meaningful ways, but also in measurable ways. And there's no doubt that one ought to treat patients with compassion is axiomatic. It's the reason why most people go into healthcare is because they want to help people. And of course, there's a moral imperative to treat people with compassion, to treat people the way we would want to be treated ourselves. But does compassion really matter in the sense that is it just an ought? We ought to treat patients with compassion or are there also evidence-based effects belonging in the science of medicine? And what is the evidence? So in Compassionomics, we took a two-year journey through the, through the literature, and we curated all the evidence from the studies that have been published uh, over the last several decades that uh, ex asked the question, does compassion really matter? And once you see all the data compiled together in aggregate, it forms this, this unmistakable signal that compassion does matter in not only meaningful but also measurable ways. And once we saw it, it was hard to unsee that. Um, it was a message that we felt that we need to carry forward and to spread as much as we could. So we decided to write a book about it. And I think that um, for those uh, who have not read the book, I highly encourage. I, I found a tremendous wealth of information. And uh, I think, like you say, Steve, a lot of things that we, we think we ought to do that we don't do. Uh, now with this evidence, I think it gives it a much higher urgency in terms of something that we need to be more deliberate about. And we'll talk about what these uh, effects are in a second. But before we go there, could you tell us kind of uh, what does the evidence suggest in terms of the prevalence or the state of compassion in healthcare today? Sure. So of the uh, 250 or so original science papers that are referenced in the book, we found a, um, an abundance of data that in healthcare, we are currently in the midst of a compassion crisis. And that's not to say that there's not compassion in medicine. Of course there is. I mean, it, there are uh, striking stories uh, every day in the ICUs and the hospital floors of every hospital in America, but are we consistent about it? And there is striking evidence that, there, that we don't. Uh, that we're not consistent about it. So uh, I'll just share with you some data. But first, I want to tell you a story. So on February 26, 2007, a commuter bus packed with passengers collided head-on with another bus on a snowy highway outside of Uppsala, Sweden. One of the buses was literally sheared in half along the long axis. The wreckage was so bad and the extrication of passengers from the bus was so complex that the case actually made it into a disaster medicine textbook. So five years later, researchers asked the question, what do survivors remember? 
there were 56 survivors. Unfortunately, six people lost their life, but 56 people were saved. And five years later, using a rigorous qualitative research methodology, researchers interviewed every survivor and they found two common themes in what they remembered. There were two striking things that were imprinted on their brain. Number one was the physical pain that they felt at the moment of impact. And that was expected. But the other theme was a lack of compassion from the caregivers at the hospital. But that's not the most striking thing. The most striking thing was when you realize that the patients were taken to three different trauma centers. They all had the same experience. So these data began to open my eyes to the fact that in healthcare, we have a compassion crisis. And so there is evidence from uh, a, a health affairs study published uh, by researchers from Harvard University found that nearly half of all Americans believe that the U.S. healthcare system and our healthcare providers are not compassionate. There, another survey, a large-scale survey study, found that two-thirds of Americans have had a meaningful healthcare experience with an with an absence of compassion. There's evidence that in the era of electronic health records. Clinicians spend more time looking into computer screens and looking their patients in the eyes. And there's evidence that physicians miss between 60 and 90% of opportunities to respond to patients with compassion. Specifically within, the, within critical care, there was a Hopkins study from a few years back which measured every interaction between a member of the healthcare uh, team and patients or families in the ICU and found that 75% of all interactions had no expression of compassion between caregivers and patients and families. And one of the most striking studies that I'm aware of is a study from the University of Washington supported by a grant from the NIH published a number of years ago where they recorded every end-of-life conversation in the ICU and what they found using a rigorous methodology to code all the, uh, all the communication, they found that fully one-third of end-of-life uh, discussions in the ICU had zero statements of compassion to families and patients. So when you put all that information together, I think that we are in the midst of a compassion crisis, and I think it's being fueled, really, by, um, or I should say a marker of it, is that we're, we're going through a, a burnout epidemic in healthcare. And one of the cornerstones of burnout is depersonalization, which is the inability to make a personal connection, which can make caregivers prone to callous or uncaring behavior depersonalization and compassion are not opposites, but if you have depersonalization, then compassion is impossible if you can't make a personal connection. And so putting all this together, um, I think that we're in a state right now where, uh, where there is uh, a lack of compassion in healthcare. At least we're not consistent about providing it. And I think that these obviously are very sobering findings, and we've talked about it a offline multiple times. And I've always thought that uh, perhaps like many other things uh, in life today, we are focusing on so many things in the ICU. So like this example of the bus uh, collision, the, the trauma team was probably focusing on 
vital signs, bleeding, EKGs, CT scans, and there's so much distractions that ultimately provide good outcomes, but we forget about the human being that is in that bed. And like you said, that's what ultimately stays with the survivors, which I think is very striking. Absolutely. So the book obviously asked the question, does compassion matter? And the answer is yes. And we're going to dive into that a little bit more. But what I if took home from, from reading the book, and I would like to hear your uh, expertise in diving a little bit further, is kind of three big buckets. So when we think of a value-driven healthcare, we always think about value is better patient outcomes and lower cost. And clearly, two of the big buckets that you have shown with, with Dr. Mazzarelli so nicely with all the review of the literature that are impacted tremendously by the presence of compassion are patient outcomes and the overall cost of health. So clearly, the more compassion, the better patients do, the more compassion, the lower the cost or, or the converse, when there's a lack of compassion, costs seem to escalate very quickly. And the third bucket that I think you alluded to a, a little bit earlier has to do with the experience of the provider itself or the clinician. And in this increasing incidence of burnout, you have studies that also suggest or found studies that also suggest that compassion can be a way of mitigating or even avoiding burnout in physicians. So there's clearly a tremendous impact on the providers themselves. It is something that uh, spiritual leaders such as Dalai Lama have talked about many, many times that if, if you want somebody else to be happy, you are compassionate towards them. And if you really want to be happy yourself, you are compassionate towards other people. And that's the effect that I think you have also found in studies on providers. So why don't we dive into each one of these buckets, Steve, and start by talking about compassion and patient outcomes. Sure. So we like to think about mechanisms when we talk about impacting patients' health. So what are the mechanisms by which compassionate care can have beneficial effects for patients? So there are physiological effects, and we can talk about some of those. There are also psychological effects, which perhaps are not surprising that compassion for others can modulate their depression and anxiety, things like that. There are also effects on healthcare quality meaning uh, the quality of care that's provided and specifically the meticulousness of patient care. And then there's also patient self-care. So how well patients take care of themselves and during all the time, the vast majority of the time when they're not in front of their, um, uh, their physician in the doctor's office. So all of these things uh, can um, uh, be areas where compassion can impact patients in meaningful ways. So, for example, physiologically, so there is uh, uh, data that compassion for others can modulate stress-mediated disease. There's also evidence that compassion for others can modulate a patient's perception of pain. So I didn't say eliminate pain, but can attenuate or reduce it to some extent. And that's been shown over and over again, um, not only in experimental settings and in laboratory settings of experimentally induced pain, but also in clinical settings. Uh, compassion for others in uh, human connection can modulate immune system effects uh, or can, uh, can have effects on the immune system. And uh, there are also endocrine effects in patients with diabetes. 
um, numerous uh, different um, uh, categories in which uh, compassion can have physiological effects for patients. One of the um, most interesting uh, areas by which uh, compassion can modulate health is in, in patient self-care. So uh, uh, years ago, there was a study from Johns Hopkins of 1,300 patients with HIV, okay? And um, this, uh, this study speaks to the importance of self-care and how human connection between a caregiver and a patient can can uh, have a major impact on self-care. So they asked these 1,300 patients with HIV, does your doctor know you as a person? And the outcome measure for this study, or one of them, was adherence to antiretroviral therapy. So of course, uh, HIV is a disease that in 2019 is controllable, but it is vitally important that patients take their medicine. So does human connection and the relationships with healthcare providers change adherence to therapy and have a beneficial effect on self-care? Well, in this Hopkins study of 1,300 patients with HIV, they measured everything that was associated with adherence versus non-adherence, and they had a very rigorous way of analyzing the data to adjust for all of those things. And what they found was that the answer to the question, does your healthcare provider know you as a person? If the answer was yes, it was associated with a, a higher belief, patients, what they call self-efficacy, meaning the patient was more likely to believe that the medicine could actually control their disease. It was also associated with a 33% higher odds of actually adhering to antiretroviral therapy. But then the most striking finding was that it was associated with a 20% higher odds of having no detectable virus in the blood. So this is after adjustment for all of the things that would be associated with adherence. What they found was knowing the patient as a person was associated with the patient believing the therapy would work, the patient actually taking the medicine, and then having uh, viral clearance of the virus from the blood. So I think that's really striking evidence that human connection can affect health in, in, in powerful ways. And, and I think that one of the, the outcomes that we always focus on in critical care is mortality or organ failure. So very short-sighted in terms of immediate outcomes that we control in the ICU, but there's a growing body of evidence that ultimately for patients who survive, there are many, many other things that matter that uh, really stick with them for months to come, even years, ranging from cognitive dysfunction to physical impairment uh, to uh, difficulties at, at, at their jobs, but also a important incidents found in critical illness survivors of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. I know that uh, you recently have published with your group a very interesting paper in intensive care medicine on the impact of healthcare compassion in the ED on findings of PTSD a month later in these patients who have a life-threatening event. Could you talk a little bit about that, Steve? 
Sure, and and that's a, a perfect segue into the psychological effects of compassion. So I mentioned depression and anxiety, and and there are tons. There's there's abundant evidence that compassion from healthcare providers, whether they're psychiatrists, psychologists, um, uh, oncologists, um, that compassion for patients can affect one's mental health in meaningful ways, both in in the disorders I mentioned, but also in just um, uh, the emotional. Um, uh, the emotional effects of somatic illness, like receiving a cancer diagnosis. So there's no doubt that compassion from one person to another can have important psychological effects. And that's probably intuitive to some extent. But we wanted to, to test the hypothesis uh, in an emergency context. And so that's when uh, I uh, collaborated with our science director uh, here at Cooper. His name's Brian Roberts. Uh, he's an accomplished scientist and, and uh, NIH-funded uh, clinical researcher from the Department of Emergency Medicine here at Cooper. And Brian and I worked together in, and continue to work together in testing a hypothesis that compassion from caregivers when a patient is in the throes of a life-threatening emergency can impact long-term psychological outcome. And the way in which we started to study this is uh, I was collaborating with Brian in cardiac, re cardiac arrest research for a number of years. And what Brian was finding in doing follow-up evaluations of, it, of the survivors that we had long uh, uh, months down the road is that many of them were were just not right and and what what we mean by that is they they were uh, having a very hard time with adjustment uh, to their new health condition and um, now in in retrospect we recognize that also many of these patients were suffering symptoms of PTSD and as you mentioned it's it's now well known that 25 to to 25% to one-third of patients who go through life-threatening critical illness come out with PTSD symptoms on the back end of survivorship. And um, what we also found is that this is not only true for people who are in the ICU, but some of the psychological trauma can be occurring before patients even reach the ICU. So imagine being a patient with life-threatening respiratory distress or cardiovascular instability and you're brought into the emergency department and you're on a stretcher in the emergency department with, with uh, caregivers scrambling all around you trying to save your life. And you might hear people say things like, um, he's trying to die on us or they're circling the drain or things like this that must just be unbelievably terrifying uh, for people. So what Brian found in his work and, and was in our, in our paper uh, just recently published in Intensive Care Medicine was that 25% of those of patients that come to the emergency department um, uh, in this uh, pilot study of 100 patients who presented to the emergency department with life-threatening uh, medical emergency, 25% made diagnostic criteria for PTSD at 30 days. And the hypothesis that uh, we tested was that compassion for patients at the point of care in the emergency department during the life-threatening emergency as judged by the patient um, uh, just prior uh, or at the at the conclusion of their ED phase of therapy was associated with lower incidence of PTSD 
at 30 days. And the proposed mechanism there is something called perceived threat, uh, which is uh, um, a, a term from the PTSD uh, literature in which a patient has to perceive a life threat in order to suffer the psychological trauma and, and, and end up with PTSD. So the notion here is that rather than treating PTSD after it's already set in and developed, if you can intervene at a, at, in, a, in such a way at the point of care to reduce perceived threat on part of the patient, then you can actually prevent the psychological trauma rather than trying to treat it later on after it's already occurred. And so this is currently, um, uh, this was a pilot study. Um, uh, Brian is now uh, uh, just in the in the process of submitting a uh, an, a grant to the NIH to do a follow up study of this, but but we're encouraged by the results because it suggests a new a new paradigm or way of thinking about PTSD from critical illness. Maybe we can actually prevent psychological trauma rather than just reacting to it after we're we're looking at the sequela. And I think it really. Uh speaks very powerfully to what we usually have learned in other diseases, that time-sensitive interventions have a tremendous effect downstream maybe a month later, and this is no different, it seems like. I mean, at the right time, an early intervention being compassion really has a powerful effect that can be measured a month later. That's that's the approach that we're taking, and that's the way we're thinking about it. Early interventions um, matter, and we think that the same thing might be true for compassion and PTSD. We just haven't tested the hypothesis yet, so um, that that's one of our next steps. So more to come, and we definitely will we'll talk about it as you as you as you conclude these studies. So I think that in in today's healthcare, cost is a often neglected aspect of value. I think that as clinicians, we haven't been uh, good stewards uh, in many occasions, especially in the ICU, of eliminating waste. But I think that even though payers demand higher value, ultimately providing value is most important for patients and for society. And I think that that is doing both parts of this equation, which is not only improving outcomes, but also making sure that we are good stewards of the resources, which are limited, and utilize them in the right way. So from a cost perspective, Steve, could you tell us some of the literature in terms of what happens when there's a lack of compassion in care? Sure. Um, there, there are a couple things that I would point to. One is um, in, in the context of primary care, for example. So discretionary resource use and human connection between the caregiver and the patient has been studied. And actually, we found four different studies in the primary care literature uh, to support this, and we describe them in the book. And they all found the same thing. And what they found was that compassionate patient-centered care was associated with lower discretionary resource use by physicians. So fewer diagnostic tests, uh, presumably some of those unnecessary diagnostic tests, fewer unnecessary admissions to the hospital, uh, fewer unnecessary referrals to specialists, and lower total health care charges. So um, the authors don't 
uh, posit a reason for that. They just note the association. Uh, I think one of the possibilities is that if you have a personal connection and a strong uh, doctor-patient relationship uh, with patients, you might not need all the tests and referrals and the, quote, high-tech uh, solutions that people do rely on when they don't have a good relationship with their patients. Sometimes it's just easier to uh, order another test or refer a patient to see a specialist uh, when actually um, uh, all it may require to allay the patient's fears is to have a good talk with them. And the last uh, bucket that we talked about, which I think is also very important, relates to clinicians and clinicians' burnout. So I think that uh, many of us have observed that if Can we go Oh, go ahead. Can we go back? Yes, please. Yeah, one, one, one other thing I wanted to mention with respect to costs is medical errors. So there is a clear signal in the data, and I'm not going to suggest to you that it's causation because we can't possibly infer causation from the available data. But it's the association between uh, compassion for patients and medical errors. So the data uh, in this area comes from the burnout literature. And so one of the things I mentioned earlier is that uh, one of the cornerstones of burnout is depersonalization. So the three, the three components of burnout are depersonalization, emotional exhaustion, and the feeling that you can't make a difference. So depersonalization is not the opposite of compassion, but if you have depersonalization, an inability to make a personal connection, there's no way that compassion can exist. So there is an abundance of evidence in the biomedical literature that depersonalization on the, on the part of healthcare providers toward patients is associated with more errors. That has been shown in numerous studies. It's been shown in uh, trainees. It's been shown in surgeons as well. So um, not just medical physicians where higher depersonalization is associated with more major medical errors, um, but also uh, depersonalization on the part of surgeons has been associated with three times higher uh, um, incidence of self-reported major surgical errors. And the main reason that the surgeons um, attributed or to what they attributed the error was a lapse in judgment. So I think it um, uh, it might be intuitive to many people that if you care more about the caring part of healthcare, you might also be more meticulous and put more attention to detail. Um, uh, some of us have been exposed to colleagues who we thought uh, they just didn't care and did, really didn't care about patients. And maybe we thought they were a bit sloppy in how they take care of patients uh, as a result. So I'm not suggesting to you that depersonalization or a lack of compassion is causing the errors, but they do appear to go in the same direction. And I think that um, there's good evidence that they're associated. And of course, um, uh, uh, meticulousness and attention to detail is one of the 
is one of the pillars of critical care because it's all about the details. So being as meticulous as possible, I think, goes with caring deeply about patients and the outcomes that they experience. So uh, the reason why I raise this in the part of the discussion about costs is because medical errors are not only of profound importance to patients for all the the human toll that that uh, occur from them. But there's also a huge economic toll for medical errors as well. And so if we, uh, uh, if we have uh, more caring, uh, perhaps we'll have more meticulousness, perhaps we'll have slightly fewer errors, and just a small impact on errors given the magnitude uh, of what they represent to the healthcare system in terms of costs, it would be, uh, it would be uh, a a big number indeed. And it's very interesting, Steve, in terms of the whole concept of the extreme of burnout and depersonalization, uh, that I think that a very uh, important element of compassion is recognizing in other human beings what we recognize in ourselves, right? So the patient, sure. somebody's husband, is somebody's father, is somebody's son, the same way that we feel ourselves in that respect, but a very interesting study that I read many years ago and really never made the connection to all this uh, till, till recently was a study where they, 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 they tested a series of, uh, of CT scans, I think it was, with a large radiology group. And basically, with such a volume, they could pass these CT scans over a separate time of, of uh, period. But the difference was the radiologists were the same, but the difference was that in one group, they had a, basically, they just looked at the, at, the, at the CAT scans and they reported the findings. And then several months later, they passed all the same CAT scans again. But now each patient had a photograph and a little blurb of the person. And the number of incidental findings and the number of things missed was significantly different when the radiologist connected the CAT scan to an individual. And it's very interesting, I think, that it maybe speaks to a lot of things that you were talking about earlier, but there might be other things or other mechanisms that we don't recognize yet. Uh, absolutely. I think that um, the paper that you reference is uh, just a, a pointed example of how much uh, human connection and uh, caring uh, for people, not just for CAT scans, really can can change behavior and uh, motivate people to uh, go the extra mile, so to speak. So a lot of times I, I joke that in, in community practice, we, we recognize things empirically that ultimately science finds very fancy ways to prove to us in large numbers. And uh, one of the things that I think I have recognized in my own practice, you have recognized because we've talked about it and many others have, is that if you're having a bad day, one of the most uh, efficient ways to make it a better day is to go down and maybe choose the most difficult family or the sickest patient, go to that room and sit down with the family or with the patient and give them your time and talk about what's going on, what, what, what are things that we can and can't do, and really show compassion towards that patient or that family. So. You have uh, talked about in the book the, about the impact 
of uh, compassion on physician burnout and the prevalence of burnout being so high and being a, a very worrisome problem. Could you share with us a little bit more details about the literature sh sh uh, tells us in this respect? Absolutely. So I recall when I was a medical student, uh, I was taught, and of course, this was part of the hidden curriculum, not really the uh, overt curriculum. But I remember being taught uh, by a senior resident physician, don't get too close to patients, because if you do, that, that'll just put you at risk for burnout. You know, too, too much caring, too much compassion will burn you out. And um, uh, I, since sharing this story, I, I've encountered a number of people that heard the exact same message at some point along their training. And the, uh, when we, in, in writing the book, uh, Compassionomics, we went through all the literature on this. And we actually can't find any data uh, to support that. So, for example, if there were data uh, to support that hypothesis that too much compassion or too much caring and connection would burn you out, then everywhere it, it had been studied in the medical literature, we would see an association with compassion and burnout going in the same direction. So high compassion, high burnout, low compassion, low burnout. And actually, when you look at the available evidence in the biomedical literature, it actually shows the opposite. So the majority, the vast majority of published studies have found, in fact, a significant association between compassion and burnout. But what they find is that they, it's an inverse relationship. So high compassion, low burnout, low compassion, high burnout. Now, some might jump to the conclusion or try to infer causation from that in a certain direction to say burnout crushes compassion. But actually, when you look at the data, there is um, uh, a, um, a wealth of, of information in the biomedical literature that actually suggests the opposite, that it might be the people with the lowest compassion that are the most predisposed to developing burnout under the same amount of stress. And a mechanism by which that can be true is that it's the, the relationships that matter. So it's the positive relationship with patients or patients and families that give medicine, uh, it's, uh, they give you the fulfillment of taking care of patients and, and provide a fulfilling positive experience that build resilience. So it's people who can't make that connection that are the highest risk for burnout. And then by extension, it might be that, that uh, having better relationships with patients makes you lower risk for developing burnout or could even treat burnout if you're already suffering from it. And I think that this is obviously something that uh, requires uh, a lot more discussion, the whole concept of burnout and uh, the whole balance between environmental factors, intrinsic factors to the provider. But I think that both of us uh, empirically have recognized that being deliberate about compassion does help you feel better and does feel, help you find purpose and mitigate the effects of burnout in the ICU. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, I, I went through it myself, to be honest. So this is, this is sort of where the science meets the personal. 
So after about 20 years of, uh, almost 20 years of working in an ICU and um, what we do for a living basically is we meet people on the worst day of their life, right? So after almost 20 years of doing that, I came to the stark realization that I had almost every symptom of burnout and um, me personally. Uh, and that is definitely not a good place to be. So what was I supposed to do? Well, I did, I, I, what I did is, is I, my go-to is to go to the data. So I'm a research nerd by background, right? So I went to the data and I looked in the literature and I tried to answer the question, well, what next? What do we do now? And everything that I found was um, not very um, appealing to me. Uh, so it, there, there were there were approaches to treating burnout that I, I consider to be escapism, and what I mean by that is get away more, detach, go on vacation, go on nature hikes, just get away. As as if if you're burned out, all you have to do is spend as much time as possible away from patients, and everything will be okay. And I think that's probably a little bit naive. Um, I do believe in work-life balance. There's no doubt about that. That's that's completely um, uh, that's vital, no doubt about it. But I, I thought that the antidote to burnout had to be at the point of care with the patient. Uh, and so uh, when I, I was newly armed with all this evidence that compassion uh, for patients. Uh, was associated with lower burnout, I decided to test that compassion hypothesis for myself. And I decided to try to care more rather than less and uh, uh, build uh, stronger relationships with my patients and families rather than fewer or or, or less. Uh, and um, for me, that, that really, that's when everything began to change. And I felt that... Um, that burnout was beginning to lift. And so um, there's data behind it. Um, uh, it's not experimental data, uh, but uh, if you look at the cross-sectional studies, burnout and, and compassion are inversely related. And so I, I tested the compassion hypothesis uh, for myself, and um, uh, it was really powerful. Uh, and I, anybody out there listening that that is going through burnout themselves, I would I would suggest that you test that compassion hypothesis for yourself and see what happens. So I just have to say, Steve, that having been a close friend of yours for many many years, the uh, the point that does not escape for a, a second uh, for me and is very interesting to not say ironic is that for being such a data driven nerd like you self describe yourself, which I think is an understatement. It is fascinating that the study with an N of one has really changed the the path of your of your research endeavors. <laughs> well, it's actually all the studies that were in the that were already in the literature. I just applied it to my N of one. So, um, so the 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 it was uh, it had plenty of scientific rigor, uh, Sergio. I know, but I, I had to. I have to give you that punch there. But I, but I do think that it, it's something that we'll talk a little bit more towards the end. But the one thing I, I wanted to, to ask you, Steve, and this I think speaks to a paper that you published very recently uh, this month, actually in JAMA Open Source. It relates to this whole concept that 
we have a crisis, you want to change behaviors, but if you can't measure a process, you can't manage it. So how do we measure compassion in, in clinicians? Yeah, that's, um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really important question uh, because uh, we wanted to take uh, and want to take going forward as we develop the original science research program uh, with Compassionomics, we want to be as rigorous as possible. And so, of course, uh, we need to be able to measure compassion. And there are, um, there have been ways to measure compassion. Many of them have been from the healthcare provider perspective, so like self-assessment of compassion, and, and no disrespect to investigators that have have gone that direction, but um, there's plenty of data to show that uh, um, uh, healthcare providers, especially physicians, sometimes have a blind spot with respect to their own compassion, where they may think that they're the most compassionate doctor, and 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 patients don't necessarily agree. So for that reason, we thought that the only uh, we thought that the best way to measure compassion is from the patient's perspective, because ultimately it's all about the patient. It's all about what they're experiencing. So we uh, set about to uh, to develop and validate uh, a tool to measure uh, patient assessment of compassion uh, from the uh, from the patient's perspective. Um, uh, in uh, uh, we're actually working on. Um, validating this in other contexts as well. But this is a study of 6,000 patient, um, patients who um, uh, received care in an outpatient office setting. And so uh, we found uh, after vetting a number of candidate items, uh, questions that uh, could be asked patients about uh, the compassion of their caregivers, and we did all the psychometric testing on these um, on these uh, candidate items, and ultimately ended up with five questions uh, that uh, can allow us now to measure compassion from the patient perspective at scale. So we actually uh, derived and validated this um, in in the context of. Um, what's called the CG CAPS uh, patient experience survey. So like if you go to a doctor's office and, and you get a survey in the mail, that's probably a CG CAPS survey, um, which was developed uh, by uh, AHRQ and is um, uh, um, promoted by the Centers uh, for Medicare, Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, so this is the, the, the framework by which patient experience is measured in the U.S. Um, in large part. And so we found that five questions, additional questions, that are related to how well healthcare providers communicate, but they're also distinct because they're not clarity of communication questions, they're caring questions. And what we found is that uh, the statistics were excellent in terms of uh, internal reliability uh, and validation for these questions. So the questions are this. Uh, how often do you feel your provider cares about your emotional or psychological well-being? Uh, do you feel your provider is interested in you as a whole person? Do you feel your provider is considerate of your personal needs? Do you feel your provider is able to gain your trust? And do you feel your provider shows you care and compassion? And so we developed and, and validated this uh, as a tool going forward so that we can measure compassion at scale uh, in healthcare organizations. Uh, and um, uh, we thought that that was uh, an important step forward, 
not just for the research and for the methodology, but also for taking care of patients uh, because we think that these are important uh, readouts uh, from the patient perspective of how much they think we care. And I have a question, Steve, on, the, on, the, on this set of five questions. And I read the paper and I really found it, I mean, very interesting. But my question was, how did the question five how often do you feel your provider shows you care and compassion uh, function in just as it by itself? It feels that a lot of the questions might discern specific aspects of, of, of the interaction, but that kind of almost encapsulates it, right? Because that's ultimately what you want the patient to feel or, 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 or not feel, I guess. I, I agree intuitively until you do the psychometric testing on it. And um, this, again, was a study led by Brian Roberts, who's our science director uh, in our research program. But we started with 12 candidate questions that we derived from a systematic review of the literature, uh, which uh, extracted all the questions that have been used in prior ways to measure compassion, uh, compassionate care from the patient perspective. And then we um, disseminated all those questions. We ultimately landed on these five questions because what we found is if you take any one of these five questions out, the uh, statistics on uh, the reliability of the measure goes down significantly. So we actually find that uh, a, I would have hypothesized the same thing that you did, that really you only need to ask that one question. But what the, uh, what the data uh, showed is that uh, all five of these questions about knowing you as a whole person, trust, uh, emotional and psychological needs, all these things are, are vital for, um, for having a very rigorous measure from a scientific perspective and all the psychometric testing that's involved with that. So definitely, I think we'll, we'll follow with a lot of interest. I mean, how this evolves and eventually, I guess, finding out what the best way of measuring this in, in the ICU is. But I think it leads us to the closing part of our conversation, Steve, for today, which is the whole question is, compassion a product of nature or of nurture. And I think that ultimately a lot of people believe that they're born the way they're wired and that they're not touchy-feely, so this is not something they can do. And on the contrary, I think that what Compassionomics it shows is that there is tremendous potential for all of us to be more compassionate. But I'll let you tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, sure. So um, your your listeners might think that because you invited me to come on your show and talk about compassion that I must be the most compassionate doctor. But the truth is that I'm just a work in progress. But I see it now, having gone through uh, 250 original science research papers, uh, more than 1,000 scientific abstracts, and curating all the data uh, that appears in, in Compassionomics, um, I, I see uh, quite clearly now uh, that uh, compassion for patients, compassionate behaviors, can in fact be learned. And that is good news indeed. Uh, that's good news for me. It shows that science shows that I can in fact get better. And once you realize that you can get better, uh, then uh, uh, you're more likely to do so. And, and that's actually been shown uh, in a number of studies, including 
uh, Carol Dweck and colleagues from Stanford who uh, did all the research on growth mindset in education, the belief that you can grow and get better at something, you don't perceive all of your um, limitations as failures, you see them as opportunities to get better. And, and their group has done has also studied compassion and has found that if you believe compassion is something you can get better at, you're more likely to work hard at it and actually get better. The operative word, those behaviors, because that's what patients feel. They feel your behaviors. They can't, we're not talking about getting more compassion in your mind or what, how you, what you think in your mind, but in terms of how you behave towards patients, you, um, there is an abundance of data that compassionate behaviors can in fact be learned. And I think that ultimately, obviously, that is the, the real challenge, right? I mean, I, we talked about how this is really important work for medicine, for patients, for providers. But ultimately, what we want to get to the path is how can we move the needle and help our colleagues and ourselves become more compassionate so that we can really have the right behaviors that make a difference for patients. Now, I know that you're a stickler for evidence, but I'm going to need your expert opinion here, Steve. And I would like to hear okay. Dr. Treziak's top three or five interventions or behaviors that we can implement to start being more compassionate with our patients. Sure. Um, so the first one has to do with time. So a recent uh, study uh, from Harvard uh, showed that 56% of physicians believed that they don't have time to be compassionate. So that begs the question, how much time does it actually take? Well, we found uh, five different studies in, in our work with Compassionomics, which all show that it takes under a minute to have a meaningful connection with a patient and to communicate uh, to patients that you care about them. It takes less than a minute, and that's been shown in a number of studies. So why is it that we think that we don't have enough time? One of these uh, uh, reasons is is um, there's a terminology called um, time affluency, or time affluency meaning you feel like you have plenty of time, you're not in a hurry, versus I'm in a hurry, I don't have time for that. So this has been studied by um, investigators from Wharton uh, who have found that there's only one type of ways, only one way of spending your time that actually increases your feeling of time affluency, your feeling that you have plenty of time, that you're not in a hurry. And the only way, uh, the only use of your time that increases that feeling is spending your time on other people. So 56% um, of uh, physicians believe that they don't have time for compassion. Research shows that it takes less than a minute. And research shows that if you do it, you're likely to feel that you actually have more time. So I guess my number one would be to think differently about our time, to realize that when we don't have enough time to show compassion to patients, it's probably all in our head. We actually probably do. And if we do it, it'll make us feel better about the time that we have. So that's number one. Um, number two is... Um, uh, is indirectly uh, related to patients, but really important. And that is compassion for each other as colleagues, because that creates the culture of compassion or a culture of a lack of compassion that we have in healthcare. 
and um, that affects patients in um, in really powerful ways. Uh, there have been uh, a number of studies on the culture of compassion in a healthcare environment and how that's associated with not only better outcomes for employees, healthcare providers, and and sick days and um, uh, uh, employee experience, but also patient outcomes and uh, patient experience as well. <laughs> so um, the culture uh, of your healthcare environment is. Uh, super important. One thing that I have learned uh, in my um, year and a half of being the chair of medicine at Cooper um, is that um, you know I, I get a lot of referrals to to talk to people when uh, things aren't going right for them. You know their behavior is not right. Um, they've had maybe some uh, harsh interactions with with patients or with families or their they're just uh, maybe a, a, a track record of, of great performance has suddenly become derailed for some reason. And um, I have the opportunity to meet with colleagues and to have one-on-one -on -one discussions with them when the door is shut. And um, what I have found, probably my most, my most um, uh, powerful lesson in compassionomics over the last two years is that is this. Uh, you, in general, have no idea what kind of pain people are carrying around. So you might notice that one of your colleagues isn't just right, um, uh, but you, you have no idea what kind of pain people are carrying around. And um, treating each other with compassion uh, when it's needed and, and, and consistently is as vital to what we do in healthcare is is how we directly treat the patients because it, it creates the culture. Um, but uh, caring for each other uh, is um, incredibly important, and that's that's a lesson that I've that I've been, that I'm I've learned over the last uh, uh, year or two, and it's a lesson that I continue to learn uh, every day. Uh, so compassion for each other is super important. The last thing I will tell you is um, directly related to um, to critical care. And oftentimes in um, critical care, we, will, we might say something to colleagues like, well, there's nothing we can do or nothing can be done for this when there is a, a uniformly fatal uh, diagnosis or, or something like that. And while it's true that sometimes um, compassion can't make a difference uh, in changing the reality of an outcome that's inevitable, um, it can still make a difference. What I mean by that is that when um, patients and families go through the worst day of their life, uh, I said this at the beginning of the podcast, but it's something they'll never forget. And it's often described as an echo chamber where they keep reliving it over and over and over again. In fact, my, my co-author, Anthony Mazzarelli, tells an especially poignant story of this at the end of the book in Compassionomics. And what I just want to leave people with is that um, uh, patients and families will be revisited uh, over and over again by some of the horrors that, that happened to them 
when they're going through the experience of critical illness. And in those moments, when they are revisited by those thoughts, they can either be met with no compassion or every time they think of it, they can be revisited by the compassion that you showed them in the moment. And it can play in their mind over and over and over and over again. And so there's no p-value you can put on that. There's no confidence interval that, that you can put on that. There's no statistics that you can put on that. But that is an outcome. That is an experience of compassion in human connection that will be experienced over and over and over again. And that is extremely powerful. And uh, uh, my co-author told the story of that uh, in the book. Um, patients and families have told me that um, over the almost 20 years uh, that I've been practicing critical care, but that's really powerful. So even, I guess the last thing that I would say is that even when compassion can't make a difference, it still makes a difference. It always and, matters. And I think that those three are, are great pieces of advice. So to recap, I mean, time is always present. We always have the time to make a difference, and you're right, Steve. Uh, the book talks about uh, Dr. Viner, Edward Viner, who is somebody that we both had as a chair of medicine, and I think we we both agree is a phenomenal bedside clinician. And one of the tricks that he taught me uh, that I've always incorporated is that when you walk into a room and there's a family and you're going to talk to them, sit down. And it doesn't take more time, but it just slows down the whole interaction, and I think it really probably gives us that time affluency of giving them the right time without changing what happens in our day, but making a true difference. With, uh, with regards to the, to, the, to the compassion towards colleagues, I, I agree 100%. I think that as a CMO of a large group, I have a chance to speak with a lot of people and I agree with you 100%. You never know what's going on. We're very quick to judging people in terms of their performance and putting labels, but you never know what's going on, and that's important. And finally, I think that the, the third point you make on understanding that perhaps when we can't make a true difference in outcomes, that's when compassion has the strongest impact, and it should always be present. So I think that this is a, a great place to stop, Steve. I really enjoy the conversation. I look forward to... To, to what your group and, and is producing. I do think this is a very important topic and I hope that we can find a way to scale it uh, to many, many bedsides uh, within Sound Physicians. But uh, I do want to finish as we usually do the podcast with a couple of questions not related to this topic in particular. And you've been through this before, so the question will be a little bit different. Is that okay? Sure. So in, in some of our recent conversations, we, we started talking about uh, music. So we talked about books and clearly the book associated to this episode is going to be Compassionomics and that will be linked in the, in the show notes. But if you were on a desert island or you can only have one album in your office, what would it be? <laughs> well, that's a tough one. So if you go back historically, I would have to say you uh, 2 The Joshua Tree. So I don't pull it out uh, all that often, but when I do and I hear the uh, the uh, uh, the start of Where the Streets Have No Name, I am instantly back to age 17 uh, uh, when I saw them in the best concert of my life. The other, the other album, though, I will tell you, 
um, and this is through some uh, exceptional mentoring uh, by a jazz aficionado that I, that I know, uh, and I listen to more uh, than just about any other album these days is Keith Jarrett the Cologne Concert. Uh, have you ever heard of that? I have. <laughs> And it is a phenomenal album. I was hoping you would say that, so we'll put that in the show notes. Well, it was a, it was a good recommendation uh, from you, uh, and has become uh, one of my all-time favorites. And, it, and it's a very special piece of music because of the circumstances in which it was created, which we won't go into in the podcast today. But people can can Google for themselves. And the last question that I have for you, Steve, is uh, about failure. I think that. Uh, Society in general is very fearful of failure, and you talked about Carol Dweck, but the whole idea of a fixed mindset is really one that's averse to failure versus a growth mindset that really just wants to learn. But I believe that failure should be embraced because there's probably a lot more we can learn from failure than from success. So my last question is, could you share with us a really, really good failure that taught you something powerful? Well, I'm an expert in failure, uh, Sergio. So it's hard to pick from uh, uh, pick one when you have so many. But um, I think is the first thing that pops into my mind is um, a failure to appreciate the obvious. Okay, so uh, the, one of the most interesting studies uh, I've ever read in my life, uh, uh, many um, incredible scientific findings over the decades from it comes from the, uh, um, uh, the, the Harvard study of adult development. So this was a study that occurred, it, it's more than 80 years old now, and um, uh, uh, what they did is they enrolled uh, college kids, uh, they were all men at the time because at that time Harvard uh, only had um, uh, uh, male students, and they followed them over time, and what they wanted to do was what was the secret to longevity? So what could you measure at an early stage in life that would ultimately be most closely associated with good health much later in life? And what they found in, in a striking way, it wasn't their achievements or their accolades and it wasn't other uh, middle-aged uh, uh, health outcomes that you might think. Wasn't their cholesterol level at age 50 that predicted their uh, longevity and good health at age 80? It was one thing, okay? It was the relationships that they had. So uh, human connection uh, is, uh, is powerful in uh, so many different ways. It even seems to be the secret to uh, good health and longevity. Um, I realize that now, right? And, and earlier on in my career, I think I was maybe more focused on uh, getting the next grant out the door or uh, trying to get papers published in really good journals. Uh, and uh, now in retrospect, uh, I wish I would have uh, taken time uh, to and invested that time uh, in the relationships with those around me, uh, in my colleagues. And, uh, now I'm just trying to, uh, now that I know better, uh, now that I, now that I have, uh, realized that, um, I'm, I'm doing all I can, uh, to make up for that. And, uh, um, the science is really clear, um, uh, that, uh, human connection is really the secret to a lot of things that, uh, underlies our health. And the beauty about that failure and realization is that, as they say, 
the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today, right? So I think that there's always opportunity <laughs> to, to move forward. Well, Steve, always a pleasure. This is a fascinating topic. I hope that we can have you back uh, as you have more findings and we continue to evolve. And like I said, I mean, I hope that we can find a way to make sure that uh, many, many bedsides find the compassion and make a difference for the careers of our colleagues. Thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you, Sergio. Thanks again for listening to Critical Matters. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play. You can also listen at www.soundphysicians.com podcast.